From the largest global governments and health insurers to local hospitals and public health agencies, from Sweden to Singapore to South Dakota, SAS Health helps the world get to a healthier future faster with advanced analytics and leading artificial intelligence and machine learning platforms. I'm your host, Alex Maersperger. In season three of our podcast and video series, we celebrate those changing healthcare and life sciences for the better. Today, we get to celebrate and welcome Dr. Robert Handfield, Bank of America University Distinguished Professor of Operations and Supply Chain Management, NC State, and Director of the Supply Chain Resource Cooperative. Welcome, Dr. Hanfield. It's a pleasure to be here today, Alex. Thank you. With um, all the other demands on your time, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Although you may uh, not have a lot going on. I mean, you you could be pretty bored these days. It's been a, a couple slow years in supply chain. Haha, <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. Um, I was joking with someone the other day, actually. I don't think I've had more uh, media mentions in any other uh, period in my life than I have in the last two years. Uh, I've been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, NPR, Washington Post, and none of these uh, periodicals took any notice of supply chains prior to that time. Right. So, so well-deserved uh, time in the spotlight. And we'll, we'll get some predictions from you later about when you can rest. Uh, so we'll talk uh, healthcare specific um, in the initial part of this conversation. I, I was at a uh, large healthcare system back probably seven or eight years ago. And at that time, we had a debate um, about buying a large warehouse and sort of stockpiling the goods that uh, we didn't need then, but we may need in the future. And I think we actually, we ended up not doing it. So we lost that, that side of the debate because at that time, the just-in-time delivery was working so well. Is there a, a big pendulum swing coming? Are we rethinking just-in-time delivery now? Well, I think we're rethinking uh, the overall healthcare supply chain in our national healthcare system uh, right now because of COVID. And just to give you a little bit of uh, background, Alex, I, uh, you know, I wrote a, a story, a report for IBM actually in 2010 about the H1N1 pandemic. And at that time, it was called Planning for the Inevitable. And uh, it, it wrote about the fact that we did need to have, you know, better national stockpiles. We needed to have better uh, alignment, better, uh, uh, you know, agility and, and better training for these pandemics, which could very likely happen again. Sadly, no one read that report. Um, I, don't, I think I still have copies of my office covered in dust. But, uh, you know, certainly uh, I think one of the things that happened then during the pandemic and I, I had an opportunity to really see uh, and have a firsthand uh, experience of what was happening. Uh, in February of 2020, a colleague of mine asked me to join the Joint Acquisition Task Force, which was tasked with actually finding PPE and healthcare supplies for the country. And as part of that, I had interviews with the FDA, with the National Stockpile, with FEMA, with the Department of Homeland Security. And it became very clear during that time period that this country was completely unprepared for the pandemic, that almost all of the supplies that we required to deal with it, including ventilators, were sourced in Asia. And Asia, China and, and Asia, of course, 
shut down during the pandemic and halted all their exports to the U.S. And so we were really stuck. And uh, as you pointed out, we, we were largely dependent on a global supply chain, yet we had a just-in-time inventory system. Now, you know, just-in-time, I think, gets a bad rap. You know, I've, I've studied just-in-time for years. I've, I've studied it in the automotive sector with Honda and Toyota. And just-in-time means that you have local suppliers that are maybe a mile down the road that deliver to you on a daily or sometimes multiple times a day. And you're in direct communication with them. Um, when you have suppliers that are located around the world and you don't have enough inventory, that's not just in time. That's the opposite of just in time. And that was one of the biggest problems we had during that pandemic. Interesting. So it's just just in time if it works. Um, and yeah. if, if not, that's a, that's a good call out. I think so... And this may may the answer may scare me a little bit, but we said we were we were unprepared or underprepared at 2020, and so now we're just two years into the future. And so we think about healthcare specifically. We had, like you said, the the masks and personal protective equipment, uh, and then it was sort of vaccine ingredients, different pharmaceutical ingredients, cold freezer storage, all of that. Have we got that situation sorted out to where we feel like we're not underprepared or unprepared anymore? Like we've, we've got some of the basics down or is there still a scramble on some of those basics? Well, you know, I, th I think we're okay right now, actually. Um, but what has happened is that healthcare providers have actually gone the opposite direction. Okay. Where now they are uh, leasing warehouses and stuffing six months of inventory in them. Uh, but they're actually not managing that inventory. They're not looking at expiration. They're not turning it. So it's likely going to expire, just like what happened with the national stockpile. Interesting. And so this is the, the fear part of this. So maybe the, the pendulum can swing pretty drastically. Exactly. And, and one of the concerns I have, you know, is that we were short of masks, N95 masks during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, most of those were produced in China. In fact, you know, 3M, all of their masks were produced in China. And uh, a number of U.S. manufacturers sprung up to start producing masks domestically here in the U.S. Well, after the pandemic wore off, what happened, many of them are now going bankrupt because their prices are higher than the Chinese who have reentered the market and healthcare providers are going back to the Chinese for their masks. So we, we really, I don't know if we've really learned. We seem to be, you know, not really supporting a domestic healthcare supply chain industry. You're going to have to have another uh, article with an inevitable title uh, to tell us what's what's coming next. And you, you talked about this, the the national stockpile. And so there's obviously a lot of government involvement in supply chain now. So from the national task forces that we've seen sprung up to the, the strategic national stockpile you mentioned, uh, there's a White House Council on Economic Advisors looking at supply chain now. Can you talk about what's working and what's not between government and private sector? Is there a, a better collaborative environment now? Is it one versus the other? Can you walk us through some of that situation? Sure. Yeah, I, I, can, I can speak a little bit on that. So, you know, one of the outcomes uh, after I worked on the uh, acquisition task force was I was asked to testify before a Congress committee led by Senator Gary Peters and Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. 
And uh, I was asked to speak on the number of shortages that were experienced, including a lot of the uh, pharmaceutical shortages that occurred, especially for ICUs, you know, propofol and some of those. Uh, subsequent to uh, my testimony, that bill actually passed the Senate, and the bill stated that they wanted to begin reshoring and requiring domestic manufacturing of certain types of pharmaceuticals. Now, to my knowledge, that bill is, I think, in the House. I don't know if it's passed yet. But I think there will be a requirement by the government for domestic sourcing, especially of certain pharmaceuticals that are really critical to our healthcare system. Um, I was also asked recently uh, in February to join the White House Council of Economic Advisors to help inform them on how I could improve or what were my suggestions on improving the supply chain. And you know, unfortunately, the government – there isn't really a lot that the government can do to uh, improve the current situation. I think that some uh, domestic sourcing could certainly be encouraged. But the question is, will the Medicare system be willing to cover that? Uh, there's also a lot of shortages right now with, with ports, you know, with, with manufacturing in Shanghai. And again, the government is getting – a lot of the blame is getting pinned on the government. But yeah. I don't know if the government can really do much about these things. They, they really are kind of a natural evolution of what's happening. Yeah, this is – that's great insight because I think sometimes – and maybe it, it stems from just our, our – human nature wanting to be in control. And so if things happen outside of our control, it's, oh, the government is going to come in and, and save the day. But I, I think you, you've talked a lot about sort of the private sector opportunity and how this is somewhat of a, a company by company basis. And so at least in the news, I think you hear a lot about Apple largely being able to deliver on iPhones and other products. You hear about Tesla largely being able to deliver batteries and components um, at a scale that others couldn't and maybe even now can't. Uh, so there were clear sort of winners um, or those that managed supply chain a little bit better than others throughout the, the sort of peaks of the pandemic. Is that also true on the life science side? You mentioned certain drugs. Uh, are there clear winners right now? One company that's just able to deliver at scale while others can't, or is it just everyone and everyone's largely playing the same game? Well, that's, that's a great example and great analogy. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Apple and Tesla came out okay was the uh, semiconductor shortage. And Apple, of course, designed uh, their own semiconductor, the, you know, the, the M1 chip, which they uh, then got Taiwan Semiconductor to produce for them in, in, on, at a scale. And likewise, Tesla, you know, had shortages of chips. They've redesigned their chips. They've also redesigned their battery to use less cobalt, which is another difficult material. So they've had to shift. They've had to make changes to their product design to be able to do that. I don't see any healthcare uh, or life sciences companies that are really doing that well yet. I think those that still has to be determined. I think there's a lot of changes in motion right now to be able to improve. I will note that there's been a couple of healthcare companies, um, healthcare providers specifically, uh, Cleveland Clinic is one that comes to mind, that has done some very interesting things using SaaS technology around what I would call predictive analytics and scenario development. And I think that's a real opportunity is to be able to use technologies to run those kinds of tabletop exercises, but doing it 
on an analytical basis to try to understand what could happen and, and how could we plan better and prepare for that. Yeah, I think the adding in the complexities of regulation and the sort of life-saving nature of the drug interventions or of some of the care delivery side, I think it, it sounds like it's early days for the healthcare industry. Um, it sounds like retail and consumer packaged goods and things, you can sort of pivot a little bit more and remove a component or add a component. Um, but healthcare, it's, it's probably a little bit early days of being able to find new ways to deliver things. And I, you know, And I also think that, you know, Remember, many of these healthcare uh, providers just came off of a massive surge because of the Omicron virus. Yep. So, you know, during the first part of this year, January, February, they were inundated and really, you know, were just trying to keep their head above water during this time period. Uh, I think many of them are now starting to look and say, what do we need to do differently? And one of the things they're doing is to, is to understand, first of all, you know, what supplies is it absolutely necessary that they have on hand? And, you know, what supplies are necessary under different kinds of situations or disruptions? If it's a pandemic, if it's a pharmaceutical shortage, if it's, you know, some other kind of disaster, you know, a hurricane, you know, what would we yeah. need to have? How would we need to be prepared? And one of the real shortfalls that we saw during COVID, which is a, still a big problem today, is, is workforce. You know, there's a real shortage of nurses and, and technicians and so forth for some of these technologies. And that's, that's something they're, they're really struggling with right now. Yeah, that, the, uh, I think there's no shortage of challenges. It sounds like that's what, that's what I'm hearing is the, the challenges are abound. Uh, you talked about uh, hurricanes and natural disasters. I think we obviously have disease and war and food shortages and sort of everything else that can come with that. And in addition to the the retention of talent, you talked about that from an organizational aspect of just uh, how difficult it is to manage your forecasting and ability to, to think through what's coming tomorrow. How about, I saw something that you recently wrote. Um, it was solution to supply chain disruptions. I think it was a tweet that you put out. So it was uh, this, you have the solution to supply chain disruptions and it was stop buying so much stuff. Um, so you've talked about from an organizational standpoint, how about from my end, uh, is as a consumer, is there one thing that I should sort of stop buying right now, uh, either from a parts and components standpoint, or is it just literally everything like on the macro level, we all need to, is this why minimalism documentaries on Netflix are so popular right now? That may well be. Um, you know, what we were talking about in that article was a, a concept called market satiation. And the idea behind satiation is, you know, why try to promote and sell a product when you don't have it in stock? And in many supply chains today, we're seeing just that, that there are major shortages of everything from, you know, certain kinds of drinks to certain kinds of produce to certain other, you know, uh, even appliances. I mean, I, I, I ordered an appliance a year ago. It still hasn't arrived yet, a new, a new refrigerator. So, you know, it, it, there's, there's a lot of shortages. And, you know, they have my money. I don't have my refrigerator. So yeah. I'm, I'm not a happy customer right now. So, you know, maybe what we need to do is as, uh, instead of just selling people and saying, well, just buy as much as you want, I'm starting to promote the idea of, well, maybe you want to buy less. And that goes com – it's completely antithetical to what most companies want to do. They want to right. sell more, right? They want to get more revenue. But maybe we need to be pricing differently. Maybe we need to be thinking about 
um, selling them different kinds of things or substitutes, for instance, which is what Tesla and Apple are doing is, is creating sort of this value analysis perspective. So it's, it's an interesting take on, you know, the, the current problem. And I think companies are, you know, need to maybe rethink that, that value proposition for the customer is, do you really want to tell them something? You really want to try to sell them something that they're not going to be able to have in their hands. And, you know, we've, we live in an e-commerce sort of Amazon click, you yeah. know, instantaneous gratification. One click and, has uh, definitely done us all in, I think. Yeah. And it's, that's gone away. It's, it's changed. That's interesting. Well, I'm, I'm personally rooting for your fridge to show up. I think you can forego a lot of things, <laughs> but uh, a year for your wait for the fridge is probably one of the tougher ones. It's on the fritz. I'm, it, I hope it arrives soon. So yeah, if, it, <laughs> if it's a couch or something, you can sort of sit on the floor. You can deal with it in different ways, but I think a fridge is uh, something we'll, we're crossing our fingers for you. Well, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, people are returning back to bricks and mortar retail now too is uh, people are going to stores because they can see it, they can touch it, they can buy it right there. And so I think sometimes when we buy things online, you know, you get the old, oh, it's in it's stock out, it's on back order, and you don't know when it's going to arrive. Interesting. That's a good take on on sort of the, the power of brick and mortar and sort of how we'll see some of that demand level set between online and, and in person. That's a great tangible uh, thought that if I can see it and it's physically there, I know I can get it. And maybe that's part of the value is maybe I'm willing to pay more for it because I, I can physically put it in my car and take it home. You talked a little bit about the uh, just-in-time and sort of onshoring and the, the local nature of how we're trying to get to some aspects of supply chain. There are lots of headlines right now of sort of globalization is over um, and that individual countries are going to try to onshore more or most of their manufacturing and supply chain capabilities. That, uh, in some effect, can be true. But in a large effect, that can't really be true, can it? We just rely so much on a global supply chain. No, you're absolutely right, Alex. Um, and I, I saw a presentation recently by an executive who basically said the same thing. I mean, there were certain supply chains. Not every supply chain is the same. And not all of them are fungible and can be moved around the world. And there are certain types of products that we have to continue to rely on China. We've outsourced so much to China. They're much more effective and efficient in certain categories of goods and services that we, we will continue to rely on them. Um, but I think what we're seeing, seeing right now is what I would call nearshoring or uh, in some cases, double-shoring. I've, I've heard that term as well, where we can say, let's, let's also use a secondary supplier. Let's develop another supplier that's maybe more local uh, to where we are today that we can rely on so we don't have all of our eggs in one basket, in one global supplier overseas. And at least for North America, you know, one of the best locations for nearshoring is Mexico. You know, Mexico is a truck drive away. Uh, you know, they speak Spanish and English. Uh, the workforce is excellent. And I've, I've visited some of the automotive factories in Saltillo and they're, they're fantastic. You know, they're, they're highly efficient, great workforce. And by the way, uh, their labor costs are now lower than the labor costs in China. Interesting. I haven't heard that. Yeah. And when you add in the, the lower cost of transportation, you know, a container cost now from China is more than 
uh, from LA, from uh, Shanghai to LA, then the savings are, are quite significant. And I think, you know, we have free trade with Mexico. We also have free trade with Canada. So I, I think we're going to start to see the movement towards what I'll call sort of a pan-North American supply chain uh, because the U.S. has lots of capital, right? So if you have capital, labor, energy, that's a really good combination for an efficient, effective supply chain. So the, the sort of globalization discussion will be very dependent on unique organizational and unique country aspects. It sounds like it's not uh, a one-size-fits-all uh, either country or organization specific, there's going to be definitely varied flavors for uh, different products and different sectors of the economy. Absolutely. And, you know, as a good example is, you know, I spoke with an automotive manufacturer and, uh, you know, they source brake pads from China. Okay. Well, in China, there's three major manufacturers of brake pads that control 80% of the market. You know, you're not going to suddenly, you know, start sourcing them from you know, Mexico or somewhere else, uh, unless you have an already very efficient supplier. And, uh, you know, there's also technology considerations and so forth. You know, one of the things I'm hearing a lot about also is semiconductors, that we're going to build a domestic semiconductor industry. You know, semiconductors are very complex products to make. They take almost, uh, it takes almost three years to build a facility. Uh, you know, Taiwan has 50% of the world's semiconductors today. And they have entire supply chains dedicated to them and tens of thousands of suppliers. You can't just build a semiconductor industry overnight. You know, you can't yeah, just so do that. Sounds like a lot can happen in those. I, I think we know now that a lot can happen in those three years that you're setting up a facility and the whole world changes at the yeah. end of those three. And, and the other thing that's very interesting, I wrote a blog about this uh, this past week, is, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot about green energy and, and about electric vehicles. Well, the supply chains for these uh, green products uh, consist of what I'll call the green metals. And there was an excellent article in The Economist that did a kind of a forecast. And guess where these green metals uh, are mined from? The major countries are China, Chile, Congo. Indonesia, you know, these are global countries that have the major deposits of lithium, nickel, aluminum, cobalt, etc. And, uh, you know, that's where we're going to have to mine them. And so we're going to have to build these mines, which take 10 or 15 years to build in many cases. So we're still going to be re very reliant on global sourcing, uh, particularly as we move to a more of a electric uh, economy. So it's, it sounds like you uh, have a long time still to go in the spotlight. I think um, one of the questions uh, around that is that we have now we have a little bit of the benefit of time of seeing just how much the world has changed from 2020 until now. Uh, we can see that a lot of the predictions were so bad in the beginning of the pandemic. And maybe it's negativity sells sells papers or sells digital clicks. Uh, the first wave, I remember reading that uh, experts were saying crowds will never come back or flights were, were never going to fly anywhere again. Uh, travel will never come back to these certain levels uh, as far as we're all going to die. Just a whole lot of doom and gloom, I think, in the initial phases. Now I'm seeing some of that negativity and some of that discussion around supply chain of just it's only going to get worse. And then there's sort of the dot, dot, dot forever. Uh 
that's sort of the ongoing headline and prevailing thought is just supply chain is going to be disrupted, kind of like you're saying, for the, maybe the next 10 years as it takes to build up supply chains in certain sectors of the, the economy and world that we're trying to get to. Is that true? Are we on this doom and gloom path or are you going to be able to get to rest in, in 2024, 2025? Well, I think 2024, 2025 is, is probably a, a good horizon for thinking about what you know, some level of normality might might come back. Uh, I think certainly 2022, 2023, uh, we're going to continue to see major disruptions throughout that time period. And, uh, you know, the problem is today is, you know, I think there's almost a pre-COVID and a post-COVID period. It's, it's forever changed things. It's definitely going to be different. Um, you know, in our new book um, that I've written with, with Tom Linton that's coming out in June, it's called Flow how the best supply chains thrive. And, you know, we, we compare supply chains to kind of the laws of physics. Okay. And uh, we interviewed uh, Dr. Adrian Bajan from Duke, and he talks about this idea of, of the evolution of flow, that fi- eventually things flow to their lowest total cost, to their lowest point. And uh, I think what we're seeing today is simply an evolution of supply chains. We're evolving to supply chains with, uh, which are flowing towards more domestic sourcing, more local sourcing. Uh, we're evolving towards more automation. We're evolving more towards, you know, people working from home. These are all changes that are, are I think, will be permanent, that, that will likely forever change the way that we work. So it's, it's a very interesting time to be in working in supply chains. And I think we're going to continue to see, you know, that evolution of flow of, of supply chains going forward. And so that the idea and concept of flow, I'm no physicist, but uh, the the link between physics and and flow and supply chain makes a lot of sense of just the natural sort of I think we, we see that in a lot of areas of our lives, that natural sort of ebb and flow of pricing and availability and things. I think it's, it still doesn't help your fridge situation uh, <laughs> in the short term, but the, the pace of supply chain disruption, certainly at least the feeling, uh, feels like it has picked up. I think every day that we turn on the news, you have disease and war and possible recession and inflation fears and different uh, material feels. Uh, and you mentioned sort of that new normal versus next normal. Uh, that smoothing thing that you predict of 2024 or 2025, people used to talk about 2021, I think, as the roaring 20s. And so now we're talking about 2024 as the, the roaring 20s. That's that's sort of my prediction right now. Um, you know, I've, I've been obviously I, I monitor a lot of the, the issues that are going on. And, and the problem we're seeing right now, as you point out, is our supply chains were always very fragile. Uh, and we got sort of lucky for a long time. We didn't have any major disruptions. And then you had sort of the, you know, the, the Trump-China trade wars. You had uh, COVID that hit. You've, you have, um, you know, a lot of the climate events, you know, the big freeze in Texas, the hurricanes, uh, the forest fires. You know, all, all of these things are, are constantly disrupting supply chains. And uh, today, right now, it's, uh, you know, COVID zero in Shanghai that's shutting down the electronics industry. You know, so I, I predict in about three or four months, we're going to start to see shortages of uh, even Apple phones, you know, because those are all built in, 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 uh, in China, in, in that region of China. 
So we're going to see periodic disruptions continue for at least 2022 and again, part of 2023. And I think that organizations will have to learn how to become more agile and, and will start coming up with interesting solutions through double sourcing, through redundancies, through, through nearshoring. And we'll start to uh, construct what I would call more resilient, uh, adaptable supply chains to what we're seeing today. That resilient and adaptable, I think, are, are just great words for what's needed from a, a technology and leadership standpoint in the future. Uh, there's a lot to be pessimistic about, certainly. There are no shortage of challenges. Uh, one thing we like to do is, is just hope for the future. What's one thing you're either celebrating right now or one thing that, that gives you a lot of hope and optimism for the future? Well, I, I think, you know, we're starting to see that people are really starting to have these discussions about uh, preparation, about having, being more prepared. Um, you know, I, th I think in some respects, now people are also starting to see the value of, you know, relationships in supply chains. And, you know, you can't just, you know, worry about what's going on in some other part of the world and, and it remain distanced from it. I think it's kind of brought us closer together as a global community. And to recognize that we're all in this together. You know, we all need to be getting vaccines for everywhere in the world or we'll have more variants. We all need to be thinking about how we work together to improve our ports. We improve the flow of materials. Uh, we all need to be worried about, you know, medical supplies and, and how we work together between different parties in the supply chain to share information. So I think we're, we're, we're starting to see a lot more collaboration in supply chains. And that's something that you know, I'm a big fan of, I've always been a big fan of that over my 30-year career. But I think we're starting to see more of it. And I'm, that makes me feel pretty good. That is exciting. I think the there's a lot of opportunity when we talked about globalization being over just as a headline and how much change that could bring and potentially will bring to, to certain economies and certain countries. I love how you flipped that on its head a little bit to say, some of that change also brings us closer together and makes us realize that we're not on, even if you are on an island alone, you're not on an island alone per se. We have to really rely on one thing that happens in one part of the world certainly affects other parts of the world. Um, and with travel and, and just the timing of things, it could be that same day now, which is, is wild to think about. I really appreciate uh, your time and I know there's there's a lot of demand on your time. Sounds like you're in the spotlight now and going to be in the spotlight for the foreseeable future. And so we're really celebrating having you on here today and getting to know you and learn from you. Thank you so much for your time, Rob. No, it's really been a pleasure. And, and I, uh, you know, I, I really look forward to working um, more with SAS going forward. Uh, you know, SAS is very close ties to NC State University. And so, uh, as you know, uh, Jim Goodnight was once a, a professor of statistics there. And I've got to add this, you know, the uh, the building where we house our supply chain center, there's a little plaque there. It's at 2806 Hillsborough Street, and it says SAS. It was the first SAS building. So there's, we can claim claim to be working in the first SAS building ever. There's a, there's a lot of red as we walk around SAS campus now today, too. So I think uh, we'll remain close friends. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time. I really enjoyed this, Alex. Appreciate you. And as a, as a viewer, there's so much demand on your time. Thank you so much for listening and participating. Uh, we can't wait to continue creating a healthier future with you. 
There are so many real challenges in the world. We hope that wherever you are, there are ways to find and be the good around you. And we welcome you to the conversation at our email address, thehealthpulsepodcast at sas.com, and here in the comments on YouTube. Thank you.